0: All right, we're still in John chapter 6, if you could turn there, rather lengthy uh, chapter. We've seen uh, first the feeding of the 5,000, then Jesus um, sending his disciples on ahead, then following them as he walks on the water, then all of the people finding him in Capernaum and beginning this discourse that we know as the Bread of Life discourse. And so we're coming to the end of that discourse today. So uh, let's listen to the word of our God, starting in verse 52. Then the Jews, sorry, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray. Father, help me to proclaim your testimony with simplicity this morning. Help me to know Christ and him crucified, that your people might know him more completely. Demonstrate your power through the Spirit, so that our faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. In Jesus' name, amen. There are many hard sayings in the Scriptures, and this passage is one of those very hard sayings, difficult to understand in many ways. We have to be patient and slow as we look at this, lest we go off into a very bad territory, to say the least. In fact, the Reformers were united, in a sense, in recognizing that this passage was not about the Lord's table. Now, this is important because the Roman Catholic Church thought it was. And so this Is a passage uh, that if you get wrong, you go really wrong. Okay, so we need to be careful about this. In fact, uh, Calvin notes about this passage, this course, this discourse rather, does not relate to the Lord's Supper, but to the uninterrupted communication of the flesh of Christ, which we obtain apart from the use of the Lord's Supper. Martin Luther also notes. In this light, I now remind you that these words are not to be misconstrued and made to refer to the sacrament of the altar. Whosoever interprets them, whoever whoever so interprets them, does violence to this gospel text. So if this text is not about the Lord's table, what is it about? Let's look at that this morning. The big idea is that Christ offers eternal life to us as a dying Savior. But first, let's look at the first aspect of this, the first thing that pops up to us, and that is that unbelievers are offended at the message of the gospel. We see that this passage begins, the third word, if you have the ESV, the word then. Not really a good word choice. Okay, For the Greek word is the one that implies, as a result of, or, therefore, what we're about to see is a response to what Jesus has said. And the particular response that they, they have to this is the fourth word, which in the Greek is the first word in the sentence. Now, if you remember that when you read Greek or when you wrote Greek, it's like Yoda speaking. Word order doesn't really matter. Okay? You know, oh, it's Yoda you see. Okay? nor what we think of in terms of, you know, here's the subject, here's the verb, here's the direct object. Forget all of that when it comes to Greek. They move words around all over the place, sometimes for emphasis. And the very first part, the very first word here is the verb dispute. They were disputing among themselves, and they were doing this in response to the words that Jesus had just said. Their grumbling has shifted Okay, first they're grumbling, we saw last week, about amongst themselves. Well, what's he talking about, her? Now they're fighting amongst themselves about what Jesus has said. There's an escalation that has taken place as Jesus has continued to reveal truth to them. The more truth they received, the more anger they experienced. As we saw at the very end of this passage, Jesus is teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum. And so this is a religious audience that's getting angry and offended, sort of like what we heard from First Corinthians chapter 11, the divisions within the body there in the church of Corinth, these guys are fighting with one another about what's happening. The issue now is not his divine origin, the issue now is the very gospel itself because Jesus has been and will continue to speak about how it is people receive eternal life. This is the core of the gospel that is in this passage. It's not a peripheral kind of idea that is going on here. Part of what they say as they summarize Jesus' words is, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? In other words, they are taking him literally. Literally. We see this pattern throughout the Gospel of John. We saw it with Nicodemus. We saw it with the woman at the well. We keep seeing this pattern of Jesus speaking one way and people understanding him in a completely different way. So they're wondering, how is it he can give us his flesh to eat? And they're offended by this. We'll go deeper into that in a few moments. But it's not just Jesus' words that are hard to understand. It's not just his words that are likely to be um, offensive to others. But Peter said that Paul and the other Scriptures were often difficult to grasp. And so while we as Reformed people teach about the clarity or the perspicuity of Scripture, we also recognize that not every passage is as clear as the rest. There are some that are more difficult to understand than others 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, There are some things in them, and he's referring to Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, but here's a key point, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so, Paul is comparing, sorry, Peter is comparing Paul's letters to the other scriptures. Not only do they twist Paul's words to their own own destruction, they twist the other scriptures to their own destruction. It's possible to do that. Why does this happen? I think we have to go to what Paul says in Romans 1, although he also repeats this in Colossians and Ephesians, this idea... But in Romans 1, that latter part, talking about the wrath of God that is revealed, he says in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but, and here's the key key phrases, became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so their, their thinking becomes unproductive, It's twisted. It's warped. It doesn't go in the right direction. And their foolish hearts, okay, because they've rejected the truth, their hearts have become foolish and have become darkened. And we need to remember this when we're presenting the gospel to people. That unless the Father is drawing them, unless the Father is shining the light of the, the gospel into their hearts so they see in the face of Jesus, unless that is happening, Their thinking continues to be futile and their hearts continue to be foolish and darkened and the gospel doesn't make sense. You must must remember this because you will experience this pushback at times. There will be people who misunderstand what you say unless they're drawn by the Father. They will misunderstand in, in significant and profound ways. For instance, the early church, on the basis of celebrating communion, was accused of being cannibalistic. Okay? There were people around them who misunderstood what was going on. They'd never shown up. They didn't know. They just heard body, blood. You guys are crazy. Okay? So there are misunderstandings that can take place because of of not asking questions, but assuming things, as we talked about last week. And those misunderstandings will happen unless people are drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit by the Father. Secondly, people will twist the Scriptures as Peter talked about. In other words, they will take them out of context. They will take them out of the historical uh, moorings and everything else to make them mean something they don't mean. For instance, we've all been there. Judge not, lest ye be judged. How many times do non-Christians bring this text up to Christians? Not really understanding the concepts that are going on. Not understanding the context of what's going on. Jesus is not saying, don't ever say something is wrong, because he says, you're too quick to see the speck in your brother's eye, but you ignore the log in your eye. So does he say just give up? No, he says remove the log. Then you'll be able to help your brother to remove the speck that's in his eyes. And that requires judgment and discernment. And so what, what they quote is not an absolute sort of thing if you read the rest of what Jesus says right there. But it sounds really good when someone is telling me I'm doing something wrong to say, don't you judge me. People twist the scriptures because of their foolish hearts and their futile understanding. Thirdly, people will be deeply offended with the notion that they need a Savior. And there's only one, and His name is Jesus. It rubs the flesh the wrong way. As Charlie Peacock saying, there's no insult like the truth. And so, when the truth of the matter comes up, people who, who still have that darkened understanding and their hearts are foolish, they resist that in many ways and sometimes in violent ways. So be aware. The argument is not with you. The argument they have is with God. And remember that. Don't take it too hard when they resist and... Try to argue and fight. Don't get drawn into the battle. But remember that their argument is ultimately with God. And so unbelief misunderstands, twists, and is insulted by the truth precisely because of the darkened minds that people have apart from Christ. Now, let's get to the heart of what Jesus says here. Jesus offers himself as a bleeding dying Savior, and that's offensive to people. This is the fourth time in this discourse that he says, truly, truly. And here is yet another conditional conditional statement. In other words, no one has life unless this condition is met. And then it's like, I don't know, Jesus astounds me in many ways. Because, you know, most of us, we don't like it when people are mad at us. We don't like it when people misunderstand us. We, we feel a sense of personal rejection when that happens. But Jesus doesn't say, dude, you misunderstood me. <laughs> he would not say that. He repeats what he said, changing it a little bit. But the idea, boom, right there, starts off. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood. He continues to offend them. He's not concerned for some reason. The, if the greater offense comes here. It's twofold. First off, the idea of cannibalism. Okay? That was seen in the Old Testament Scriptures as a sign of God's judgment upon the people, meaning you're, at, you're being sieged, there's no food that comes in, the food that's in the city runs out, and what's left but cannibalism. It's the Donner Party all over again, you know? That's it. That's all you got. And so it's a sign of God's intense judgment upon people. So they would be offended at that. But they would also be offended at this notion of drinking blood. We see that this was offensive, this is contrary to the law. It's contrary to the the covenant God made with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. The life is in the blood, and therefore you're not supposed to eat the blood. We see that 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 is also brought over uh, in Leviticus 9 and Leviticus 17, which we read. For instance, sorry, not Leviticus 9, Leviticus 3. It shall be a statute forever... Throughout your generations, in all your dwelling places, that you eat neither fat nor blood. And again, Leviticus 7. Moreover, you shall eat no blood whatever, whether of fowl or of animal, in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Compare the passage Mark read in Leviticus to our call to worship from Psalms. God's um, turning his face toward them and enlightening them. Contrary to Leviticus, the people that eat the blood, he turns his face away from them. An important contrast. The blood. We see this sort of judgment in a character like Hannibal Lecter, don't we? There's something that's immensely disturbing to us about Hannibal Lecter. Because not only was he a serial killer, but he was a cannibal. We see this also sort of in real life. Ted Bundy was bad. Jeffrey Dahmer worse. Because there's something about that that rightfully disturbs us. And these people, in a sense, were very disturbed because of what Jesus says. Note that he has shifted. He says, eat the flesh of the Son of Man. And then in the very next sentence, uh, whoever feeds on my flesh. Again, he's identifying himself through these parallel statements that he is the Son of Man from Daniel 9 who most fully reveals the glory of God to humanity. Now, let's stop. If we think that this is about communion, then we have a big problem. Or maybe it's not a problem. Maybe it's really good. If we think this is about communion, then essentially eternal life comes to us through the sacraments. If we want to think that this this refers to this that we celebrate every week, and this bread represents his body, and this wine represents his blood, and that we receive, as it says here, if we want life in ourselves, then we have to eat of this, and that's what this is referring to, then that means salvation comes through the sacraments. And that is the doctrine of Rome, that salvation comes through the, doc- the, the sacraments, beginning with baptism, maintained through the Lord's table, as well as through... Um, my brain just went blank on the rest of them. Uh, you know, last rites, penance, marriage, orders. Okay. Is that really what the Scriptures teach about how people are saved? No, not even in this passage is is it what is taught. And so we cannot go down that road because that road brings us into contradictions that don't exist in Scripture. First off, let me reread Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, okay, that phrase, now, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we see this idea of you do that, then you have eternal life, and having eternal life, I will raise you up on the third day, I'm sorry, on the last day. Let's look up a little bit from last week. Verse 40. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Note, what are the benefits? Having eternal life, being raised on the last day. Same exact phraseology, In verse 40 and in verse 54, how is it that you receive these things? In verse 40, Jesus talks about everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him. Therefore, it only makes sense that when Jesus speaks of feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood, he's actually talking about what it means to look on the Son and believe in Him. Eating and drinking as a figure, a way to understand what true faith looks like. Not two different ways of salvation. Or a step A and a step B of salvation. Okay. This is why Augustine, about this text, writes, Believe, and you have eaten. This is why Martin Luther, about this very text, says, The partaking of this bread is nothing but faith in Christ our Lord. And so, to eat or to feed and to drink is to look on the Son and believe in Him, It is a picture of faith. Another reason why this is probably, or not probably, this is not a text about the Lord's table itself is that here Jesus keeps using five times flesh. Sark's uses that term. Not body, soma. Whenever we go to the, the all of the texts that we know are about the Lord's table, it's about soma, not sarks, and that distinction is an important one to make. Okay. Now, people want to say want to think this is about the Lord's table because there's no institution of the Lord's table in the upper room in John's gospel, which we'll see who knows when, whenever we get there. Okay. I have not mapped it out that far, okay? Only to the end of this year. But flesh, not just the physical body that Soma represents. We see in John 1, verse 14, in the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father. Full of grace and truth. That that word flesh or sarks refers to the fact that he had full humanity. He didn't just occupy a body. He was a fully human person. The idea that he has two natures: fully God, fully man, God of God, light of light, as we read in the Nicene Creed earlier this morning. Okay? So he's a full humanity with all of its weaknesses accept sin. So, Jesus in this text is not offering his body, but is offering his very life, his very existence, and inviting them to partake of it. Blood, in this passage, he uses four times. And this commonly refers to death, often a violent death and a sacrificial death. We noted from Leviticus when Mark read that in the blood is the atonement. We see in Hebrews how the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. But Hebrews reminds us that it's not the blood of goats and bulls that matters. Okay? And so, when Jesus talks about drinking his blood, he's talking about the reality of his sacrificial death. That Jesus did not come and offer himself to us as a Superman or the Superman. You know, Clark Kent, how he keeps saving the world through his great power and his great strength and occasionally his great wisdom. Turning the world back in the original Superman movie, you know, so that Lois Lane could come back to, you know, he'd have time to go and save Lois Lane and all that kind of stuff. It's by his strength that Superman saves, but Jesus saves through his weakness. He's not a Marvel Comics character book, uh, character. He's a bleeding, dying savior. That's the one we need. We don't need Iron Man. We don't need Captain America. We need Jesus who comes and dies in our place, something the others cannot do, his weakness. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ Christ. And Him crucified. Not glorified. Crucified. The cross must come before the crown. Now, I'm going to go all Calvin on you for a second. Because Calvin notes that while this doctrine is not about, this text is not directly about the Lord's table, he says that the truths that we see here are pointed to by the Lord's table. And so we recognize that this table that we celebrate points us to this bleeding, dying Savior who is a substitute for sinners. Okay, Do you understand Calvin's distinction? It's not about it, but he recognizes that the table points to it, okay? The Lord's table, as I said, offers us this bleeding, dying Savior who gives us life when we believe. And so this is why Jesus says that his sacrificial death is true food for the soul. In a sense, Jesus is saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34 says that. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And the very next sentence, which Hebrew poetry, the parallel aspects of it, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. What is it to taste and see? To take refuge in him. And you will find that he is good. Peter brings this up in his first letter in the second chapter. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you sought refuge in Him, you will know that He is good and you will continue to long for that pure spiritual milk and you will grow up in your understanding and experience of salvation. Is what Peter says. One more thing about this section. Jesus starts off saying, eat, the man who eats. But then he shifts to the one who feeds on. Interesting switch that he makes. One way to uh, understand this second word, feeds on, is sort of to eat loudly or munch, as Leon Morris says. This idea of finding great delight in what you're eating so, you know, when I have my pistachios, I'm munching down. Or my almonds. I love those nuts. Okay? i munch those. I munch on good buttery, salty popcorn. I take great delight in these things when I'm watching movies. Okay? That's the idea. Delighting in Christ. Finding great satisfaction in Him. Tasting. That he is good and satisfies the soul deep down. And so the one who believes is the one who finds delight in Christ. And this one, Jesus says, is the one who abides or remains in Christ. The soul satisfied in Jesus is the one who abides in Jesus. Because if you're not satisfied, you're looking for satisfaction somewhere else. And money and fame, and the list goes on. But the one who is satisfied remains by faith in Christ, pointing to this reality that we are united to Christ, and therefore he says, And I in them, he dwells within us, he remains within us by the power of the Holy Spirit and gives us life. That's good. Very good. And so Jesus is the Son of Man who offers Himself as a bleeding, dying Savior for sinners. Third thing I want us to look at this morning is that the Father imparts eternal life through the Son. He doesn't do it directly, though He could, but He chooses to do it through the Son that He might give glory to His Son in the eyes of men. Jesus here reveals the Father as the living Father. It's interesting. Remember, last week we talked about the bread of life. Then at the end he says the living bread, or the bread that's alive. This is the Father that is alive, and this Father has life within Himself, and this this Father gives life to the Son, pointing to the reality of Jesus as begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Okay, remember what we confessed earlier. Before worlds began, in a way that we cannot comprehend because it's not the normal thing. The Father begot the Son. And so the Son now has life in Himself because the Father had life within Himself. John 1, four notes, In Him was life, and the life that was the light of men. The word there is not bios. We get biology from. It's not about physical life. This is zoe, spiritual life eternal life living it up kind of life okay so he's not saying that people outside of jesus are biologically dead he's saying that outside of jesus they are spiritually dead and they don't know what real life is apart from jesus And so in all of this, Jesus frames his dependence on the Father in a new way. This idea of imparting life is the Father's idea. Again, the the living Father who sent me. There's a number of things that this destroys, one of which is that idea of modalism. First, God was Father. Then he stopped being the Father and became, became the Son. And now, after the resurrection and ascension, he stopped being the Son and now he's the Spirit. No. The Living Father. The Father who still lives while the Son is on earth. No modalism. They all exist at the same time. Okay? My little sidestep. All right? But this Eternal Father, this Living Father, sent the Son, he says. John 17. I want us to think about this for a second because we forget this part. I don't want to wait till we get to John 17 for this part. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, speaking to the Father, says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The Father sent the Son into the world for gospel good, and the Son sends His people into the world for gospel good. He sends His people, those who believe. Now, here's what I don't want you to do right now. I don't want you to go to this place of, where is God sending me? Does He want me to go to Africa, New Zealand, Greenland? That's not what I I want you to get. Where have you been sent? That's the idea. And where you have been sent is your family. Okay, that's one place you've been sent. You are meant to do gospel good, speaking the words of life of Jesus to one another within your family, encouraging one another within your family, within your marriage, You've also been sent into your neighborhood, the place where you live, the people who are around you that you get to rub shoulders with periodically. You are meant to speak the truth to them in a loving, compassionate way. You are sent to this church, if you're a member here or a regular attendee. You are meant to do gospel ministry here encouraging your brothers and sisters who may be downcast, who may be confused, who may be overwhelmed with their guilt. You are meant to do ministry here. If you work outside of the home, you were sent there by Jesus. Not just to do your vocation, but also as opportunities arise to speak truth into dark places, needy places. All right. Jesus again brings up this manna that preserved the fathers early earthly lives for a time, but he mentions again that they all died. Jesus wants them to shift their attention away from miracles and away from edibles, okay? And to focus their attention on sacrifice and real life. And that's what he wants for us. To turn our eyes away from our munchy edibles, so to speak, and our focus on signs and miracles and all that stuff. Sacrifice, his sacrifice, and real life that only he can bring. And so the Father, according to Jesus, imparts this real life Through the sacrifice of Christ, otherwise known as the Son of Man, to those who feed or believe on Him. That's why I said this is, this gets to the heart of the Gospel. This passage is about the source of eternal life and the conditions for receiving eternal life. If we think it is directly about communion, then we'll think that life comes through eating and drinking the bread and the wine. Instead, we should see that this is about faith in Christ as a bleeding, dying substitute for sinners. Communion does not point us to bread and wine, but communion points us to Jesus as a sacrifice upon whom we place our delight by faith. So where are you looking for true life? The only source as the one who died and rose again. Let's pray. Father, a hard thing for us to grasp at times because it is so contrary to the messages we get 24-7 from people we know and television, radio, everything else. That life is always in something else, something different, something new, and usually something expensive. Father, we thank you for Jesus who cuts through all of that. Thank you for Jesus who provides real life, Thank you for Jesus who gives us these offensive and yet powerful words to understand what it means to believe in Him, to partake of Him, to be nurtured by Him and Him alone. And so help us to really wrestle with um, this reality that He was sent for our salvation but also that He has then sent those He saved. And help us to speak the truth in a loving, understandable, compassionate way even though we know we might not be understood and we might not be liked. And we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen.